We're going to be in Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. That's an Old Testament prophet. Oh, kids can go back with Kayla. Off they go. And uh, we'll be in Micah chapter 7. Oh, nope. Hold on. There is uh, something about that song that I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, Yeah, there's something there. Micah chapter 7. Last week, we began that journey called Advent, that season where we are invited into waiting and into hope. And during Advent, we gather the light, slowly but surely pushing back the darkness. And as we do, we encounter the God who speaks and says, let there be light. It's no secret that the world is a dark place. It's no secret that at times the darkness will overtake our lives. You're going through life without a care in the world, and then bam, something happens and you are entirely out of control. If we look closely, we notice that the darkness wears different masks and takes different forms. There's that darkness that's outside of us and much bigger than us. It's the darkness of injustice and brokenness, of systemic poverty, of systemic racism. And and that darkness is connected to, but distinct from, the spiritual darkness that the authors of Scripture call powers and principalities. And that darkness is personified in the prince of the power of the air, uh, the accuser of the, bre- the brethren, Satan. Sometimes the darkness comes crashing into our lives unexpectedly, almost randomly, an experience of suffering or pain that we did not see coming, a hospital stay, uh, a car accident, a cancer diagnosis. And sometimes that darkness is experienced when someone we know does us harm, when we are harassed or slandered or abused. But sometimes, sometimes, the darkness is of our own doing. Sometimes the darkness is of our own making. Sometimes we go running headlong into the darkness. Sometimes our sin and disobedience brings the darkness down on us. Some of you may be here out of a week where you have wrestled with the sin of your present. Some of you may be here this morning having been awoken in the night by the sin of your past. But as we look at the prophet Micah today and his words to God's people, I want to help us see that even when we go running headlong into the darkness, God's heart is to lead us from darkness to light. God's heart is to lead us from darkness to light with forgiveness and compassion and unfailing love. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and look at chapter 7 of the book of Micah, starting in verse 7. Which says, as for me, I will look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently for God to save me. 
and my God will certainly hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemies, for though I fall, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, Yahweh will be my light. I will be patient as the Lord punishes me, for I have sinned against him. But after that, he will take up my case and give me justice for all that I have suffered from my enemies. The Lord will bring me into the light, and I will see his righteousness. As we jump into the book of Micah, we're jumping into a particular kind of literature in the Bible, prophetic literature. And so we hear Micah saying that he is confident that God will hear and help and save But Micah isn't speaking of his own personal sin. Micah is speaking on behalf of God's people, on behalf of Israel and Judah. He's speaking prophetically almost as if he's saying what they should themselves be saying. A smaller, more trivial version of this, and let's see if anybody thinks this is normal, because last service didn't. Um, Sometimes a stranger will start talking to Jack in the store, and so like I respond to them in the first person as if I was Jack. (laughs) Does nobody else? Okay, well, that's kind of what this is like. That's, don't you miss when I'm here? Because who else do you laugh at? You know what I'm saying? In verses seven through nine, Micah is speaking of darkness and punishment and enemies that gloat. So what's happening here? See, This summer, um, remember we were studying the life of Saul and David, and in January we'll return to 2 Samuel. And in that book, David unites the 12 tribes of Israel into one kingdom. But within a generation, the kingdom breaks apart. The 10 northern tribes form the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes form the nation of Judah. Micah is prophesying at a time when these countries are separate, at a time when both nations are marked with political corruption and social dishonesty that are all symptomatic of a spiritual sickness of idolatry. And so Micah addresses the political and the social because they are reflective of the spiritual idolatry of his time. He is speaking to those issues. And in Micah chapter 6 verse 8, there's a verse that's actually right there. What does the Lord require? But to love mercy, do justice, walk humbly with your God. See, the problem in the book of Micah is that the people of God, Israel and Judah, have neither done what is right, they've not loved mercy, they've not done justice, they've not walked humbly with God, and so as such, God declares that he will bring discipline and punishment on their sin in the forms of the nations of Syria and Babylon. See, God's people have sinned against him, and God will not leave that sin unaddressed. He can't. In Micah, we find how God plans to address that sin, and it's at this point that we have to stop and talk about our culture and our time, which is remarkably like Micah's time. Uh, in, In Micah's time and in ours, sin is an unpopular topic generally, and when it is brought up, it is brought up not as in terms of this is what it is, it's brought up in terms of what is it and what is it not. Ours is a cultural moment where on social media and on cable news and the public square in our own lives, we are engaged in a negotiation about what constitutes sin and what doesn't. And not only are we debating that in our culture, we're debating the remedy for sin in our culture. We're we're debating the remedy for wrongness 
A decade or two ago, what's interesting is if, if this was 10 years ago, even 20, I would have had to spend the next 10 minutes justifying the biblical category of sin. I would have had to explain why there is something wrong and why something does need fixed. We would have had to go into that. But we live in a particular cultural moment where we have never spoken as, of morality and sin as a culture more. Sin and morality, right and wrong, are always always at the front of our minds. And I want to show you two examples of this. Um, One is the author Brene Brown. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She has a book that I really like called Rising Strong, another really good book called Daring Greatly. Uh, Brene Brown kind of rocketed to fame with a TED Talk, which are these kind of conferences of new ideas. Uh, Her TED Talk on YouTube has millions on millions on millions on millions of hits. She has since gone on to be on Good Morning America, on the Today Show. Uh, She's one of Oprah's favorite people. She has her own Netflix special. But Brene Brown is a researcher who studies, uh, studies society, and her particular area of focus is shame, shame. And she talks a lot about in her books that the antidote for shame is vulnerability and connection. I think what's interesting is here we have a person who is right there at the surface level of our culture pointing out what's wrong and what she's actually talking about is the byproduct of sin. Before the fall, they were naked and unashamed. They sinned, they were naked and ashamed. We have at the public level of our culture a conversation about sin and about shame. On another hand, we have this other element in our culture right now. It's called the cancel culture. Have you heard of this? Um, This is what cancel culture is. It's when we find out that a celebrity or a politician has done something wrong in their past, we cancel them, we exile them to our culture's outer darkness. And so that's been very common as we've heard of like celebrities that have like sexually abused women in the past. I'm not saying that that was bad. I'm just saying that our response to that as a culture is they're not allowed to make movies anymore, including um, Lori Loughlin. Remember her from Hallmark specials? Because she did, like, paid some college to get her kid into college. She's not in Hallmark anymore. Like, she's the one that we don't, she's the one we don't talk about, the, the Hallmark person. That's cancel culture. It's when you have done something wrong, we never want to see or hear from you ever, ever, ever again. And what's so interesting is that not only is, are we now talking about sin as a culture in terms of shame, in terms of morality, in terms of all these things, our culture is also proposing solutions for that sin, solutions for the wrongness. How do we remedy that? Now, Brene Brown says uh, we need vulnerability and connection. Those are good words. I think I appreciate them. The problem is uh, you're a broken person under the realm of shame. I'm a broken person under the realm of shame. And as far as I can tell, two drowning people can't help each other all that much. If I am vulnerable and seek connection with you, someone who desperately needs vulnerability and connection, eventually that's going to fall apart. Eventually you're going to wound me. I need someone. This is where Jesus comes in. I need someone from the outside who is whole with whom I offer my vulnerability and connection so that I can truly see healing. We can only offer that to each other so much. And by the way, this this cancel culture idea is also not the way of Jesus, is it? Because what does Jesus do with sinners? He does not say, yes, you gross person, get out of here. He puts the sinner in the center of the room and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus brings them to the center for redemption and restoration, not exile. And so I want to look at Micah chapter 7 and how does God deal with sin? 
How does he lead us from darkness to light? Our culture has some ideas, but how does he lead us to darkness to light this Advent season? So look at Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9 again. As for me, I look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently for God to save me, and my God will certainly hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemies. For though I fall, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light, and I will be patient as the Lord punishes me, for I have sinned against him. But after that, he will take up my case and give me the justice. For all I have suffered from my enemies, the Lord will bring me into the light, and I will see his righteousness. A couple things to note in this passage. First, God doesn't just name our sin and then say, good luck with that. We'll see you next time. God names our sin and then seeks to remedy it. And somehow in this text, God is both judge and defender. Do you see how he does that? Somehow in this text, God is both judge and defender. He names our sin, meets out punishment, and then seeks to defend us from that. Look at what it says. It says, I will be patient as the Lord punishes me, for I have sinned against him. That's verse 9. But after that, he will take up my case and give me justice for all that I have suffered, and I shall see his righteousness. See, even in our sin and our brokenness, God seeks not only to name the problem, but also to bring a solution. He doesn't just point it out and leave us there. What God does is he comes down off the bench and he walks alongside one of us as Emmanuel, as God with us, as one who understands and can sympathize with our weakness. He walks us out of the darkness of shame and sin into the light of his freedom and grace. And we'll explore how he does that. But the second thing to notice is that Micah advises patience in the face of the Lord's punishment. Um, This word punishment in Hebrew is really interesting. Uh, It means to storm, to storm or to rage against. And it's the same word in the book of Jonah that describes the water that's like leaping up and over into the boat as Jonah's trying to run away from God. There's something in God's nature that in the face of sin, he gets stirred up. He cannot let the guilty go unpunished. He storms against sin. But what's interesting is is Micah's language here. I will be patient. I will endure the Lord's punishment. What I want you to see here is that God is quick to forgive sin. And we'll see that in verses 18, 19, and 20. But this is the part that a lot of us struggle with, me included, that God is quick to forgive us our sin. God is quick to lead us from darkness to light. But that doesn't always mean that God removes the consequences of our sin. God doesn't always remove the consequences of our sin. This is the part that we struggle with. If God is a forgiving God, why doesn't he release me of sin's consequences? Even if he releases me of sin. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul interprets it this way. He says, don't be misled, don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. He says, I love how the NLT puts it. Let me find it in here. You reap what you sow. Yes, you always harvest what you plant. You always harvest what you plant. See, the reality is if I plant grumpiness and anger and nastiness, that is what I will reap for the rest of my life. I'll probably be very lonely. If I plant kindness and faithfulness and gentleness, that is what I will reap, and I'll have blessings for others. 
I think this gets to the heart of George Orwell says that um, everybody by the time they are 40 has the face that they deserve, right? People who have, some of you are laughing and some of you are like thinking right now, what does my face look like? <laughs> because as we plant that grumpiness, it shows on our faces. As we plant that graciousness, it shows on our faces, right? This is why like there's some 85, 90, 95 year old people that you know this, they're just the worst, they're just the worst, right? But then there's these like 85 or 90 year old people that you're like thinking, I don't know if they've like sinned since like 1985, right? Like that this is, that they're like these really gentle people. See, the reality is there's consequences for our sin. And the reason that we experience those, the reason that God doesn't remove them is the book of Hebrews calls that God's discipline. The book of Hebrews calls that God's discipline, that God, as a good father, disciplines his sons and daughters. Listen, I will be a terrible parent. I already would be if I had never had told Jack no. And at 10 months, I've already had to tell him no far more than I expected. We all know those permissive parents. We see their kids in Target, and they are also the worst, right? They don't even have to wait to 40 to have a terrible face. They already got it at like eight, right? Steph and I are walking, him through, walking Jack through Target on Good, Fr- on Good Friday. Nope, Black Friday. And uh, he's like losing his mind. And so Steph sees like a $3 rubber ducky. He loves this rubber ducky. She gets that and hands it to him. And then she says, I wonder if we just started something. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is where it begins. See, discipline, Hebrews chapter 12 says, is God treating us as, son, when we, as sons and daughters. When we endure the consequences of sin, God is forming us into the image of Jesus. And sometimes those consequences stick with us for the rest of our lives. Sometimes God in his grace pulls back his hand so that we don't experience the fullness of it. But some of us will be like Jacob. Jacob, after wrestling with God, walks with a limp for the rest of his life. Walks with a limp for the rest of his life as God wrestles his manipulation and control and deceit out of him. Here's what we know. God's heart is not only to name our sin, but lead us from darkness to light. He is our judge. He is our defender. He is our father. He does not just send us to our room to pout. In fact, he makes his presence known to us even in the midst of the consequences of our sin. And, that, and that's what that idea, the Lord is my light even when I sit in darkness. And so in verses 14 through 20, which I would commend to you just to go spend time with when you get home, uh, I'm going to fly over these quickly, which means we only have about a half hour left. Um, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Some people are like, I never know if he's serious or not, and I don't either. Just see how long it takes. Start in verse 14. Three ways that God leads us from, and I would appreciate you noticing that the Prezi moved from dark colors to light colors today. Thank you very much. Okay. First, we find that God leads us from the thicket of darkness to green pastures. Look at verse 14. O Lord, Protect your people with your shepherd's staff. Lead your flock, your special possession. Though they live alone in a thicket on the heights of Mount Carmel, let them graze in fertile pastures of Bashan and Gilead as they did long ago. And here, it's almost like Micah has been talking to God this whole time, and now he jumps in. Yes, says the Lord, I will do mighty miracles for you, like those I did when I rescued you from slavery in Egypt. See, the, the, the imaging is here is beautiful. So here we are, the Lord's sheep, 
on the top of a mountain, on the top of a mountain, not a lot of things to eat for sheep, very cold up there. And now we have become trapped in a thicket of our sin and our shame, which also happens to sheep. They have wool, it gets caught in things, they get stuck. And here's what Micah says, the Lord is going to come and get you. And he's going to come and he's going to disentangle you from your sin and from your shame. He's going to get you out of that thicket. And, he, and then he says something interesting. He says, I'm going to take you to Gilead. I'm going to take you to Bashan. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We can just move on. No. Um, Gilead and Bashan are two of the most fertile and abundant places in Israel. Two places that were actually stolen by the Assyrians. And God says, I'm going to give that back to you. I'm going to give you these fertile places. And that's where I'm going to set you. I'm going to set you beside still waters. I'm going to lead you to green pastures. I'm going to restore your soul. He says, this is easy for me. I took millions of Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, through a Red Sea, up to a mountain, gave them a law, led them through wilderness for 40 years, fed them every day, got them into a land, established them in the land. It is easy for me to get you out of the thicket of your sin and shame. If you feel stuck in the thicket... If you have settled for the scarcity of sin, God wants to lead you to new pastures of abundance in life. God leads us from the thicket of darkness into green pastures. He, he puts an end to our enemies and puts them to open shame. Look at verses 16 and 17. All the nations of the world will stand amazed at what the Lord will do for you. They will be embarrassed at their feeble power. If you're a Browns fan, you know exactly how that feels. <laughs> they will cover their mouths in silent awe, deaf to everything around them, like snakes crawling from their holes. This is Genesis 3 imagery, I'm pretty sure. Like snakes crawling from their holes, they will come out to meet the Lord our God. They will fear him greatly, trembling in terror at his presence, trembling in terror at his presence. See, God defeats our enemies by turning our, our enemies into worshipers. God defeats our enemies by putting them to open shame. When our enemies see how small they are in the grand scope of God's plan, all they can do is put their hand over their mouth and just be so embarrassed that they ever thought they were that good at what they were doing. This reminds me of, um, we have this book for Jack. It's actually the theme of his first birthday party. It's called King Jack and the Dragon. His birthday invitations say, our little king is turning one, and it makes me feel like we think he's a king, and that's not, it's just because the book. Our, king Jack and the Dragon. And King Jack, Jack, Zach, and Casper were building a fort, a mighty place for his men and his end. And uh, King Jack is left in the fort after all his friends go home, and he looks outside, and there's the thing, and it's got four legs and big, bright, shining eyes, and he's afraid inside the fort. And then when they, the thing gets closer, it's actually just his mom and dad come to get him. And I think that's what our enemies and our sin feels like when we're in the darkness. That's why sin thrives behind closed doors, because um, it, it looks more powerful than it really is than when confronted by the light and the presence of God. Maybe as an encouragement to confess something that you've been hiding. God deals with our enemies. And then finally, we find this, that God defends us in our sin and forgives us because he's delighted to do so. Uh, he delights in showing forgiveness and compassion. So somebody, I don't know who, decided to put you know, yellow on a white background. So that was smart, right? It's a nice boogery color. But this is what Micah says in this last part. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant 
overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised your ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. Here's the good news. God delights in showing unfailing love and mercy. God delights in that. If God woke up in the morning, he would spring out of bed excited to offer you compassion and forgiveness and goodness and grace, totally excited to walk the journey of darkness to light. And here's the reality. God never woke up. God never sprang from his bed. But before eternity, before time, before ever, ever there was a thing, God was excited to walk with you in your journey of darkness to light, into your forgiveness, into the goodness of God. God casts our sins into the ocean. He tramples them under his feet where they are remembered no more. Here's something that God is really bad at. God is really bad at remembering your sin. These verses, by the way, are almost copy and pasted out of Exodus 34. And I think they're so important because so many people believe that God is so mad at them. And you look at this and it says, he'll be angry for a little while, but he'll get over it because the core of his character is freighted toward goodness. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his anger. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And as I read these verses, uh, 14 through 20, which are written centuries before Jesus, all I can think about is this is all about Jesus This is all about Jesus because Jesus is the good shepherd come to find the lost sheep stuck in the thicket. Jesus is the light of the world come to lead us from darkness into light. Jesus, Paul says, that his death and resurrection uh, put to open shame the forces of darkness as he triumphs over them in the cross. Puts them to open shame, Paul says in Colossians 2. A laughingstock are the forces of darkness after Jesus has died and risen again. Jesus is the visible, tangible expression of God's love, full of unfailing love and faithfulness, John says. In the darkness of our sin, friends, I just want to remind you of something. This isn't necessarily the most challenging sermon on the face of the planet unless you are unwilling to be forgiven. Then it might be hard for you. But what I want to say to you is that God is so excited to walk with you in love and forgiveness. What I want to say to you today is that God is so excited to walk that journey. And there will be consequences and it will be hard, but he can't be stopped. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, he died last year. I've read a lot of his books. And uh, his son, Eric, at Eugene's funeral, um, shared that um, every night after Eric fell asleep, Eugene Peterson would creep into his room and whisper over him these words. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Friends, I don't want you to lose sight of the truth that God's desire is for you to remember and receive forgiveness. And whether that's for sin of this week or sin of 10 years ago, the Lord's desire and posture towards you is to move towards you in love and affection. 
and there will be a hard conversation between you and your dad, just like there would be any hard conversation about the consequences and what does this mean and what will we look at, but God's great desire is to shoulder that burden with you. God's great desire is to shoulder that burden with you. He doesn't just send you up to your room to like linger and hang out and sit in the junk. He says, I will be the light in your darkness. And what an opportunity that we have, what an opportunity that we have to show what true forgiveness and grace looks like in a culture that either forgets it or cheapens it. They trump up the consequences of sin and cast people to the outer darkness, or they say, hey, that's fine, don't worry about it. And what we can talk about is this God, this God, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. Here's, here's the gift that God wants to give you this Christmas. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that he's on your side. He wants you to know that he's coming after you. He wants you to know that he is relentless. Let me pray and then Steph will lead us in response time. Father, you uh, love us and you're coming after us and you're on our side and these are all good things. And so Lord Jesus, um, I pray for the one amongst us who needs to know your goodness and your forgiveness and compassion that in the moments even that we gather around this table, that you would break through in a huge way. Thank you, God, that you, that's your posture toward us. Thank you that you do not stay angry forever. Thank you, Jesus, that all of the wrath that God had toward our sin was poured out on you so we can know his love and forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name.